Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Recorded live from the lobby of the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C., Welcome to Black and Lit, powered by Full Service Radio. We're your hosts, Jasmine and Priscilla, and we're broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in Washington, D.C. Black and Lit is a multimedia brand celebrating dope black people doing the things they love without boundaries. Each week, we're bringing you inspiring stories of tastemakers, artists, and entrepreneurs of color who are taking risks to create the life that they want. Our guest today has had a glowing career focused on inclusion, environmental issues, and advocating for women entrepreneurs, specifically those of color. Her name is Erica Shimizu Banks, and she's currently the public policy and social impact manager at Pinterest. She formerly worked at Google, working on the patent policy team, and working in diversity, inclusion, and equity initiatives. She's an Oxford grad, and a former staffer at the Obama White House, and we're so excited to have her here. Welcome to the show, Erica. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome. Thank you for being Thank here. Thank you so much. I feel Such like a this is a long time coming. Absolutely. <laughs> so yeah. needed. I'm so excited yeah. for this. I remember uh, Tally actually first introduced me to you. He like sent me your email and was like, oh, you should connect with... Erica, she's doing some amazing things. Mm-hmm. During that time, you were at Google. That's right. I was like, let me go ahead and reach out to her. And we had a great informational meeting as I was sort of coming back to DC and trying to like figure out what my next move was going to be and just trying to get plugged in into the sort of ecosystem here. But now I know you're at Pinterest. Yes. So tell me a little bit about your role there and what um, you're specifically doing. Sure. So, um, yes, I'm at Pinterest now. I started their DC office Mm -hmm. um, in June of last year. So I've been there for about nine months. And I made the switch because um, at Google, I really enjoyed my time there. I have so much love for so many of the people there and the company. And I had an amazing experience. Um, But found that a lot of the work that I truly cared about and that spoke to me personally, specifically, you know, working for social justice and having a social impact and working on behalf of my community um, was sort of work that was in addition to my core role and responsibilities. Mm -hmm. And I was really fortunate to be able to like work that into what I did. Uh, But for my next move, I wanted to make sure that my public policy work was firmly kind of ensconced with my social impact work and social justice work. And around that time, a friend reached out and was like, hey, there's a public policy and social impact role opening up in D.C. at Pinterest. (laughs) So um, I made the switch. And so, I mean, Pinterest is obviously the website where we all go to make collages of beautiful photos and recipes and interior designs that we like. You don't really think about Pinterest with public policy or social impact. So like, how do you, how do you draw those two together? Absolutely. Um, so the mission of Pinterest is to bring everyone the inspiration to create a life they love and living an inspired life, which I think is very much in line with black and lit's mission as well, which I love seeing. Um, you know, is undergirded by so many things. And the public policy uh, 
regime is a part of that. So mm-hmm. the regulations and laws that define and um, monitor and sort of regulate the internet, right, um, mm-hmm. are key to that. Um, the people involved in making those decisions um, need to get the perspective of companies like Pinterest to figure out, like, okay, why is your business important? What does it do? Mm-hmm. And really, you know, as public servants, like, as policymakers, they should really be serving their constituents. So if we can show, like, that their um, constituents use our product and get something meaningful out of it, then that means that the product is meaningful to that that policymaker. So making that connection is super important mm-hmm. and being able to represent not just for the company but for marginalized voices online to make sure that issues of access, issues of representation, um, issues of discrimination, of... Um, you know, education, all of these things that, you know, have to do with not just our real life, Mm -hmm. but our lives online Mm. um, are made clear and are advocated for and are represented fully um, is really important in public policy. And I think often it's underlooked, but, you know, public policy in so many ways defines how we live our lives. And so often people of color um, and women have been, um, and women of color especially, mm-hmm. our voices have been marginalized. So I feel a lot of responsibility to not just represent for the company, of course, but to represent for my community and everything I do. And um, it was important for me to be at a place where I could make that connection. Absolutely. So how do you sort of reimagine those sorts of conversations in the context of Pinterest for people to have sort of an access point to conversations around race, environmental policy, all of that? Mm -hmm. Well, I actually also um, help run sustainability Mm -hmm. at Pinterest. So that's part of my, thank you. So that's part of my social impact um, sort of prerogative. Um, And that's about figuring out our carbon footprint, about figuring out what to do with, you know, the waste and excess food that's generated Mm -hmm. um, in offices. Unfortunately, I don't have that out here, but at headquarters, (laughs) uh, they get, you know, they get all three meals provided uh, for staff. And so there's a lot that's an amazing benefit um, that could be so easily, that could so easily go to waste. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's partnerships to make sure that that food doesn't go to waste and is sent to local schools and um, to food banks and things like that. Um, So, you know, it, it, there are ways to integrate that at a local level, at a larger scale level. We've just started things out in DC. So I'm constantly looking for ways to do that. Um, And in terms of, Uh, the public policy front sort of generally, um, you know, the perspective that we have is that in order to live an inspired life, that's a life that's free of hate. It's Mm -hmm. a life that's free of barriers. Um, It's a life that's free of, um, that's, that is free of barriers to what have been institutionally sort of um, um, not given to folks, especially like us. So these are issues of access. It is, um, you know, being able to create your own sort of like positive corner of the internet. And Pinterest is that mm-hmm. positive corner for so many people. For sure. um, so we want to make sure to retain that and also to protect that for all sorts of people. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, everyone's vision of what is positive, what makes them happy and what inspires them is different. Absolutely. And there's so much negativity on the internet. So it's kind of beautiful that you guys are doing that. Um Okay, so you you do a lot of advocating for women of color, specifically women entrepreneurs. Indeed. And you created 
um, an organization to help with this. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So when I was at uh, when I was at Google uh, back in the summer of 2016, which I think we all remember, were the summers of a resurgence, unfortunately, in uh, the killings of Black people mm-hmm. um, by the police and extrajudicially. Um, by members of the community who should have been protecting them and looking out for them and seeing them as neighbors. Absolutely. Um, And that conversation, I think, was not just a national, global conversation, but more importantly, it was a community conversation. Um, And, you know, community is is everywhere you are. It's Mm -hmm. where you live. It's where you work. And so it was really important to me that 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 conversation be brought into the office. And for many of my black colleagues, you know, we got real with the majority of um, the people we worked with that said, yes, these issues of being killed and brutalized by the police, even though we work in this office with you, are educated like you are, have lived, you know, live in the places you do, um, make the money you do, that doesn't negate our blackness mm-hmm. and that doesn't save us from this treatment. And this is an issue that affects us all. And um, it's an issue that affects us all whether we are directly impacted or bystanders to it. Right. And so we all have a role to play in fixing this and understanding this. And, you know, I was honestly afraid I was going to get fired after that <laughs> conversation wow. with that, like with that level of realness. Yeah, because yeah. you did a whole TED Talk about this. Like I you did. all were at a roundtable conference room yes. and you shared a very personal story about your brother being brutalized by the police. Yes. Yeah. That's so, um, yeah. So, um, you know, it was sort of a, it wasn't even a leap of faith. It was just like, I just cannot take this anymore. Mm. Hearing like, oh, but this couldn't have happened yeah. to you, right? And right. I'm sure, sorry, so many of us have been in that situation. And right? was this your first time telling that story about your brother in that way? Openly. In, inside of a workplace environment? Absolutely. Wow. It absolutely was. Um, you know, it took me years to this day you know just being real it's still um a source of sort of tension in the family mm. uh because that story itself the story or? and the situation because um i think it's new that we even in, my, in our community in the black community that we have a consciousness about the unfairness of that situation mm-hmm. um and or the unfairness of the circumstances that result so often in yeah. situations of police brutality. And there was so much shame that we all collectively carried mm-hmm. as a family in this. I'll never forget talking to my mentor, who is a judge in Seattle. Um, I went to college in Seattle. Um, she's a black woman judge. She is, like, such a boss and, like, such, like, a mother of so many, ama- you know, amazing women. Such an inspiration. And I was scared to tell her that this happened. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that is? You didn't want her to judge your brother or... Yes, I didn't want her to vulnerable in that way. Absolutely. Like, I didn't want her to judge me. I didn't want her to think, you know, being honest, like, I didn't want her to think I was like, we were that kind of black family. Yeah. And tell, sorry, go ahead. (laughs) In the TED Talk, you, you sort of allude to that sort of being able to code switch very seamlessly, right? Sort of your way to the top, if you will, getting opportunities at all of these major places was because you were able to sort of. Right talk this language if you will and right. then it sort of gets broken down when there's a moment that sort of reveals this other mm-hmm. side of you and your blackness absolutely 
And, you know, I've always been proud and my pride has only grown mm. in being a black woman mm-hmm. and coming from this lineage and being a part of this community. And yet I think, you know, we've been gaslit for so long that so many of the social problems that disproportionately impact our community, we've brought onto our, being told that these problems that disproportionately impact our community, we brought on to ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If only we tried harder, if only our parents stayed married, if only are, you know, if only we worked harder, if only we pulled our pants up, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And I would like to say I didn't completely buy into that, but I think we can't help but let some of that seep in. And so I remember, you know, feeling this, like the burn in my cheeks when I wanted to talk to my mentor about what do I do? Like I need to help my brother get a lawyer. I need, Mm -hmm. um, you know, support from the community on this. And she was, she's so kindly like just listened and she's like, why didn't you tell me this happened? Like when it happened? And I was like, I was afraid of what you would think. And she's like, there is no shame in this. This Mm -mm. is what they do to us. Mm. And she like recounted all of these situations that she had been involved in as an advocate in the community of um, police brutality against youth in the community. And that was sort of the first time uh, that I felt comfortable talking about it. And that was months after it happened. Mm. And it wasn't until years later um, that I spoke up about this at work about almost, uh, let's see, it was six years, six years later. And wow. and just for those who are listening that didn't hear your TED Talk yet. Um, but please check it out. Yes. <laughs> Do <laughs> listen. Plug. It's it's really amazing. Tell them just brief, quickly, what did happen with your brother. Yeah. So um, when my brother was in college, he went to UC Davis on a um, full scholarship, full merit scholarship, and was on the track team, a Division One athlete. He was in a fraternity. Um, they had a party and he blacked out and when he woke up, uh, he was handcuffed to a hospital bed What? and, um, it turned out that when he was blacked out, he was approached by police and because he was non-responsive, but actually was bleeding from a wound, a stab wound he had, um, had gotten, uh, while he was blacked out instead of seeking treatment for him, they pulled a gun on him. Wow. What? And, um, and, and, um, he stood up and an altercation ensued and they, they beat him up and they arrested him and piled on a bunch of charges and he woke up not knowing what had happened. Um, and you know, I had to secure a lawyer for him. I was in Seattle at the time. He was in California. Uh, and you know, we had to, he, we, we had our experience through the whole the, the full gamut of the justice system. Mm. Wow. What did your parents say? What was their sort of response through all of this? So I think, you know, my parents were shocked. Mm. Like we grew up in the suburbs of Sacramento. We grew up in a gated community. Mm-hmm. Uh, we grew up in a very diverse community. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom is Japanese. She's from Japan. And her interactions uh, with the police in her home country had always been like police in Japan are like, for the for the typical person, your everyday interaction, like they're there to help you. Mm-hmm. They have like information booths in the middle of like city centers. Wow, like that. So it's a very different relationship. And uh, for my father, unfortunately, as a black man growing up in America, he was used to this. Mm-hmm. He's used to being stopped for nothing and being searched for nothing and things like that. But I think they were shocked when this happened to their son, who they thought they had done all the right things to get him to a place where this wouldn't have to to have happened to him. Wow. Now, during the TED Talk, you sort of say that um, once the story left your mouth, 
there was no turning back. It was no longer yours to keep. Mm-hmm. So what sort of responsibility that you did you then acquire after sort of telling your story? What were those next steps? What was the reaction in the room after that? Those are like so so many different questions all at once. <laughs> yeah. I'll try to I'll try to bring it together. But um, you know, I think what I what I mean by that is it goes back to honestly the shame. Mm-hmm. It goes back to a couple of things. It goes back to that feeling of shame, but then it also goes back to perception, and I think they're pretty closely tied. And one is that um, you know, no matter how I presented my story, or you know no matter what words I used, I cannot um, control how those words are processed in the minds and through the lenses and the filters and the biases of the people listening. Mm. Um, And, you know, through their own experiences. And then on the flip side, I think of something that Halle Berry always said, that, like, even though she's mixed, you know, her mother is white, that when she's out in the world, she's perceived as black. Mm -hmm. And therefore she is always going to rep being a black woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I wondered what that perception means layered over my story. But also going to your point about responsibility, what piece of that narrative can I reclaim for a purpose greater than my own sense of self and my own sense of shame and my, my own perception of that experience? Mm. And how is how can I turn this into an opportunity to make sure that this doesn't happen to another family or that um, to make sure that I can do something to change the narrative um, in a way that that demonstrates that this is this is a problem of justice yeah. and not a problem of people. Um, and what can I, how can I turn this into an opportunity to serve my community and uplift my community? Mm. I mean, I think about this all the time. Like, how do we change this narrative? Because, I mean, what your family did is what a lot of black families do. You know, the parents work really hard. They get an education themselves. You know, they move to a diverse neighborhood. They put their kids in good schools. All with the hope that we can change this narrative and give our kids a better life and give them better opportunities whereas they're not just seen as a black boy or a black girl they're seen as a man or a woman so how do we change this narrative like what do we do I feel like so many people have the wrong mindset you know people like OJ Simpson that go through all these hoops and ladders and they're like I'm not black I'm OJ Mm -hmm. you know they try to gain this identity outside of their blackness But at the end of the day, like, how do we change this narrative? If we're doing all the positive things that we can do, like, what do we do at this point? I think we have to be specific about what narrative exactly that we're changing. Mm. Um, And I think for me, the narratives I want to change are the respectability politics and the, the, the personal accountability piece. And um, explain that. So I think what the larger institutional system of oppression and white supremacy um, lasts and is strengthened when we fail to recognize its overarching impact and that's, how that's a whole word. <laughs> <laughs> Say it again. <laughs> I wish I could. <laughs> Yeah, but it's like, you know, every time you say, oh, but in this situation, if they had only 
listened to, you know, if they right. had only been a little more, if they hadn't had so much attitude, if they had just been a little more respectful, mm-hmm. if those pants were a little tighter, right? Like if, if their car, if the car windows weren't so dirty and they could just see through, whatever mm-hmm. it is, every time we make a personalized exception to this narrative, uh, the greater narrative of injustice and racism and brutality, it chinks away at the, um, at the whole Yes. And um, and sure, there are exceptions to the rule. But unless we recognize what the rule is, those exceptions become the rule and those exceptions undermine reality. And so the narrative for me is about recognizing the reality of our unjust situation. So you're basically saying we need to stare the problem in the face, call it exactly what it is, like this is what this country was founded on, this is how our people were treated for hundreds of years. And continue to be. And continue to be. Let's call a spade a spade, and then once we do that, then we can start solving the problem. Exactly. Yeah, and I think that we're living in a really powerful time right now where there's a lot of art that is sort of putting our stories out there in that sort of way that is very mm-hmm. uncomfortable but shows just like all of the the things that we're going through in a very real way mm-hmm. what Absolutely. are some other how do we address it how, what are some other ways that we can do this in the sort of tech space well you know i don't think i have the answers to that but i think we have to continue trying uh different things innovating right mm-hmm. which is what tech is supposedly all about uh, to figure out how to solve this. But again, it's recognizing these patterns that have um, have been consistent across time and applying them or recognizing them for what it is even in a new context. So sure, the context is different of technology, but at the end of the day, it's industry. At the end of the day, it's big business. And uh, the common vein in business, especially in this country, has been, um, you know, well-funded white men who inherited their wealth or mm-hmm. received it from friends and family. Like, what the heck is a f- friends and family around y'all? Yeah. Uh, like, come on now. Right. <laughs> like, no. Um, and formed businesses from that privilege and that access to wealth uh-huh. and then uh, sort of re-entrenched and repeated those those circles yeah. by hiring their friends, by hiring people from their alumni networks, um, and by applying pretty like imprecise metri- imprecise and just sort of like um by applying like and, and not really applying metrics to their method at all yeah. because Faking they a lot of stuff because they had the privilege to do so <laughs> right um and and that is kind of like how everything is right so yeah. i think the more we recognize how tech actually isn't exceptional then we can find extraordinary ways to have an impact here. Mm -hmm. Then we can have extraordinary impact. Um, And I think that is recognizing like, hey, the problems we see in tech, we see across society. So this is not just a hiring issue. This is a racism issue. This is a bias issue. Um, This is an issue of access. Um, This is an issue of equity. Mm. Yeah. So I learned something recently in researching for the show. that here in D.C., black women own the most number of small businesses. Yes, we do. Which I had no idea, and that is absolutely amazing. But obviously, as we all know, black women are the least funded group of entrepreneurs, and an overwhelming majority of venture capital goes to white men. So how do you, how do you think that 
black women should be advocating for themselves? Like, how do we change that narrative specifically? Well, everyone should be advocating for black women. That's the narrative that we need to agree. (laughs) And uh, thank you for bringing that up again, because, of course, in my long-winded way, I did not even answer your first question about this, which is after that conversation, it was like, you know, we all have a role to play in addressing inequity and in every facet of our industry. So, you know, me as a patent policy analyst on the legal team, what role do patents have to play in race and social justice um, and gender justice? Mm -hmm. And uh, one key way was that very stat, that black women are the fastest-growing group of entrepreneurs in the country, that um, we we do so much more with our dollar than other groups, Um, and we are so much more intrepid, and yet we are not getting the capital we need, we're not getting the resources we need, we're not getting the attention we need. Mm -hmm. And so um, I got together with a group of like-minded women who had also recognized that just overall, especially in the fields of innovation and IP, women are not being given their due, Mm -hmm. whether that's being named as inventors, whether that's being paid the same as men for doing the same work, um, whether that's for being, for getting the recognition that they should for the inventions they're a part of. Um, There are so many inequity issues there. Mm -hmm. um, And patenting is actually one of the most disparate and stratified industries um, in the country, especially against women and especially against black people. So So do you think it is that not enough women or black women are applying for patents or they're just not getting approved for them? So it's not quite that. It goes further back into, you know, in grad school where, um, you know, black women actually outpace, I think, um, they definitely outpace black men. Um, and I think, I, I don't want to be wrong here, so I'm not going to say it, but I think black women uh, constitute a, a substantial amount or perhaps the majority of college entrants mm-hmm. and post-grad. Um, entrance and they're graduating and they're getting these degrees especially in the sciences but then they're not getting the jobs that Mm. these degrees are supposed to guarantee them they're not getting the recognition for the research that they do Mm -hmm. they're not getting awarded uh, at the same levels that their male counterparts and their white counterparts um, are for for the innovations that they um, develop and then that trickles into when you get into patenting, usually you get in together with a research group. Uh, you have to get funding together. Mm-hmm. When you file, you list everyone who's contributed to that. And so often women are left off of that filing. Wow. wow. Even if they played a substantive role. Um, so there's, grow- there's a growing body of research around this. There was a hearing on this recently, and there was a bill uh, passed two, I guess two, last year, actually, to study the um, disparate impacts and in innovation, mm. um, especially on women, uh, but of people of color as well. So hopefully that research grows, but I feel really honored to have been part of the beginning of that conversation. And Beacon is an outgrowth of that conversation, which is the DC Women Founders Initiative. Um, while I'm no longer a part of it because I believe strongly, A, in sort of starting things and when a community sort of forms around it, letting the community um, grow it and take Mm -hmm. it on for themselves. Um, And also, you know, I wanted to serve black women more directly. Um, Beacon serves all women in D.C., uh, all women entrepreneurs, and the majority of um, folks in the Beacon Network are women of color. Wow. But I wanted to make an even more direct impact uh, with black women entrepreneurs, and so I serve on the board of 1863 Ventures now, which is an organization for black and brown founders. Oh, wow. And um, I mentor uh, black women founders and invest in black women-owned businesses. Wow. How does someone 
become a part of that? Hit me up. Let's talk about it. (laughs) There are so many ways just from, you know, repping the black owned brands Mm -hmm. in our neighborhood. Like if, even if you're just like, if you, if you bought a dress at Nubian Human or something, Mm -hmm. like tell people that, Mm -hmm. put it on your Instagram, you know, Mm -hmm. like put it in your posts to uh, making sure that if you have any purchasing power at the companies that you work in or the organizations you work for, making sure you're vending with you know, black-owned vendors, black women-owned businesses, mm-hmm. um, making sure that's a component of contracts you sign. If you can, if you have that kind of authority, there's just there's so many ways to engage and support black women-owned businesses at every level. Yeah, I think it's so important to to think through that lens. I think always we we haven't been taught that, and I think that's also by design. Right. Um, but really thinking about, you know, as we're striving and as we're growing personally, how can I reach back and pull somebody else up with me? Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, Super we have important. two hands. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, arms wide open. <laughs> Put them both On the way to the there. top. Yes. <laughs> All right. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to learn more about what Erica is doing at Pinterest. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Black and Lit, powered by Full Service Radio. We're your hosts, Jasmine and Priscilla. And today we're here with Erica Shimizu Banks. She's the public policy and social impact manager at Pinterest. Welcome, Erica. Thank you. Um, We've had a really great conversation with you today. And I think we want to pivot a little backwards a couple years ago. So you worked in environmental policy at Google. What exactly does that mean? again. <laughs> sure. So, um, I, so I actually worked in environmental policy before I came to tech. Oh, um, okay. I knew ever since I was, you know, in high school that I wanted to work on, uh, environmental issues. I was part, I did like, you know, river cleanup in my, um, hometown and like tree plantings and like protesting against construction and things like that. In high school? In high school. Wow. So I knew early on, I felt very fortunate to have always I feel very fortunate to have always, for better or worse, uh, felt very uh, cause-driven. 
um, ever since I was young and was very focused on that. So went to college um, in Seattle for environmental policy. Nice. Um, then uh, got a job uh, doing environmental policy work eventually at the White House um, at the Office of Management and Budget, where I was a political appointee there um, working, working on natural resources. Uh, which was amazing. Got to know like Elon Musk's companies like Tesla before it's the Tesla, you know, that we know oh, now. Um, I got to kind of, I got to see the, the first like commercial rocket um, launch and come back no to way. Earth. There was like this whole party where everyone just danced around the, like the rocket, which is very weird. Was this <laughs> SpaceX? Now, this yes. was a space that, that yes. is so fascinating. Which was so cool. So Jasmine's just, obsessed with space. Oh, as really? Like, awesome. Like, my inner childhood nerd is obsessed with space. I always have been. And the Very fact cool. that you've been able to do that, like, I think the whole concept of SpaceX, I personally cannot wait to go into space. Like, I will be that person paying $250,000 one day, maybe. You know, I'll travel all around the world, but, you know, I don't need to go see the moon. Don't know <laughs> right about now. outside of it, right? Right. Oh, I cannot wait. Right. 50 years from now, that is exactly where I'll be. Well, funny enough, space, like all things space, is one of Pinterest's top 100 trends of the year. So really? Right People are trying to get out of Trump's America. <laughs> just eject us from Just her. get us out of here all the way. Forget Canada. We're going to the Go moon. To space. <laughs> Over this. Love it. But did you grow up in a family that sort of encouraged like environmental sort of curiosity in that sort of way? What... What even sparked your interest in that sort of, to move in that sort of lane? You know, honestly, no. Like, my mom was, um, for the most part, a stay-at-home mom, and then she had her own business. She was actually the first woman entrepreneur I met. Um, She had her own business, um, like, cleaning homes. And um, it was, you know, such hard work that I, and it's, like, manual labor, and I think we really do not honor all types of work, right? And especially Mm -hmm. not um, kind of manual labor and the work that we rely on so many immigrants to do. Mm -hmm. And don't give it the respect that we should. And um, I knew, like, I didn't want to do that. And my dad had a degree in business. He worked for the local newspaper in sales. And um, he always told me, you know, it doesn't matter what you study. It doesn't matter what degree you get. Just, like, just do business. Just, you know, do the, do the stable thing. And I was just I like, my parents told me that. that. <laughs> well, so fu- funny enough, I thought I wasn't going to do that. And then yeah. here I end up, you know, working for a business. Uh-huh. So, um, you know, things kind of turn out unexpectedly. Um, but actually my very first memory, and this sounds crazy, but I remember distinctly seeing this beautiful, massive, you know, hundreds year old, um, oak tree in my in my hometown and just like looking at it when we'd be like driving home like I remember being in my car seat and like feeling the heat come in through the window and like I had one of those like Hmm. cheap vinyl car seats so it was like burning the back of my legs I remember that feeling oh I remember those days right um and looking out at this beautiful tree and thinking like this is amazing um and that is literally my first memory Um, and then several years later, that tree was cut down Hmm. for, you know, a bunch of track homes. And, um, I remember taking my dog when I was a little girl through fields where she was like chasing, um, chasing rabbits. And then in a few years that was impossible. Mm -hmm. And I don't think, you know, I haven't seen a rabbit. 
I rarely see rabbits out in the open. So just having those experiences growing up and just being so moved by the natural world and really um, comforted by it and sort of renewed by it, um, it's something I knew I always wanted to help preserve. And um, once I got to college, I realized that there was also a race and social justice component to this. And so I started to work on environmental justice issues through a community coalition in Seattle um, where we addressed issues of affordable housing, where we talked about pollution and like the siting of, you know, toxic and industrial waste sites and how so often they are placed in communities of color. That is what I wanted to talk about because I recently heard about this and I feel like it's something that people widely have no idea about like and it doesn't matter socioeconomic status if it's a wealthy black community or a low-income black community they're still affected just because it's a black community these corporations choose to put their industrial waste well it's not just it's not just corporations it's you know because you have to get permits to like build certain types of sites so it's governmental the government Mm. um too and it's the devaluing that we see in so many other aspects of life Mm -hmm. of the black community and of black life and the research when i was in college the best research at the time said that the greatest indicator of where a toxic waste site would be cited was the race of the community that's why nothing else that is infuriating. Like, that is actually infuriating. Sad. Yep. And when I found that out, I was like, no, this, I have to do something about this. And, you know, another vulnerable, honest moment, like growing up being, you know, being mixed and like having this very like sheltered kind of experience and sort of idyllic experience of like growing up with all these different races and ethnicities and having that kind of cultural competency at the same time, it made me afraid, honestly, to work directly on race issues when I was younger. Why is that? Um, just because I felt like uh, I didn't want to be pigeonholed, mm. which looking back, and I hear, you know, I still hear this today, right? When people are that. like, oh, yeah. but I don't, and I, and I get it. I have to say I get it because, again, it goes back to the narrative, though, of that we are always, like, of, of, of having to fulfill this individual exceptionalism. Mm-hmm. Like, like, you know, I could say, I don't want to be considered a black woman in tech. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm in tech, right? Or, mm-hmm. like, I'm not a black woman working on policy issues. I'm a policy expert. Mm-hmm. And there's something very legitimate to that. Yes. But that's only legitimate because, again, going back to the greater narrative of how we're yeah. so unfairly impacted by the things we cannot change about ourselves and what has been assigned to us and the perception of that. So all of that is to say I felt that fear thinking about my career. Mm-hmm. But then when I got to college, I was like, whoa, this is another undeniable moment. Like once the realization came to me, I was like, I cannot help but work on this issue. If I'm going to work on environment, I need to acknowledge the racism and environmentalism. Yeah. And there's no way to, you know, again, there's no way to solve the greater problem if we don't call a spade a spade. Yeah. And yeah. acknowledge what it is. And, you know, I think there is a growing awareness now of that, um, especially in environment, especially in terms of climate mm-hmm. and the disparate impact of climate change mm-hmm. on poor countries that are populated by people of color. It is a global racism issue. Um, And there isn't a a growing awareness of that. And I think we need to start seeing those issues in our communities in the U.S. in the same way. Like Flint is an environmental justice issue. Yeah, Yeah. so what do we, I mean, so you see something like Flint, and obviously this has been going on for 
way too long. And so many people, celebrities, people with money, like CEOs have gotten involved in the conversation, but still nothing has really been done. So like, what can we do? Like at times it almost feels like we're powerless against this racist government that does not give a shit about us. You know, um, every, I think every solution is sort of twofold. It's a yes and situation. We have to do things for ourselves and we need to make sure that everyone else is getting in on this with us. Mm. Um, it's like what Rihanna said at her uh, NAACP acceptance speech. Yes. Like all the people in your lives who are not people of color, who are not, you know, who are not like you, mm-hmm. but they say they're for you. Pull up. They need to pull up. Right. Um, but, you know, there are so many amazing examples of people in our community who are doing, you know, who are working for our community. And in Flint in particular, um, there is a, there's a woman named Dahl Levant who has created um, a water technology to address this very issue. Mm. And she is a black woman from Atlanta, um, very engaged in the community. And, um, and she saw her father um, suffer through uh, cancer that was environmentally, um, you wow. know, caused and realized that, again, this environmental racism issue, like, we as a community are disparately impacted mm-hmm. by pollution, by all of these things. And so she decided to do something about it. So look up her work. Um, and then there are the amazing uh, girls from the D.C. public schools who got second place in NASA's competition uh, for innovation, and they created a water filter to address the Flint water crisis. Wow. wow. So uh, look them up. Um, Google actually did a feature on Dahl and these girls called The Women of Water. I think their story is still available online, but very inspiring. It's amazing that we have these individual, you know, individual stories to look to, to inspire all of us to action. Yeah, that is so beautiful. And I mean, just going back to the conversation of talking about telling your story and identifying as a black woman in this fight. Like, I also think about those young girls that are creating, you know, these innovations to change the world. Like, people forget that the things we do, yes, are for ourselves, for the community, but you have to think about the people coming behind you. And, like, you can't, you can't be what you can't see, you right, know? Right. So if you're not saying, you know, I am a proud black woman and I am doing X, Y, and Z, I mean, how can you reach both hands and pull somebody up that looks like you? It's almost like you're inspiring people by saying who you are. Yeah. Representation, Representation is so yes. key. Yes. It's so much more, you know, again, it's that, it's that reverse psychology that's done to us by society, mm. uh, where in order to not address the bigger issue, they tell us it's not an issue. They distract us with the other stuff. Yeah. Right. Like, oh, but you know, who, who needs to see diverse faces online or in, in media? Because the stories are the same. We're all human, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely It's like, not. no, there is a reason <laughs> why you do. There you go. <laughs> no. There you go. Um, so, yeah, uh, representation matters. And I think it's so important um, to rep being a black woman in policy, being a black woman in tech. It's, again, a yes and situation. It's like, yes, I'm a public policy expert. And I'm a proud black woman. Mm. And those two things can be the same. I hate when people say, and unfortunately this is how so much government language is worded, that, you know, we help everyone or we do this X, Y, and Z thing regardless of race. 
It's like, no, I want you to acknowledge my race. I want you to acknowledge the struggle of my ancestors from being brought here against their will Mm -hmm. and forced to build this country without any compensation, without any credit, and furthermore, Mm -hmm. you know, actually being punished for being forced to do that. Um, And I want you to acknowledge that history uh, in everything I do. So, yes, it's not regardless of race, it's because of. Mm -hmm. And um, I think the more we are proud to claim that, that recognition of that important, you know, the important and beautiful difference of our diversity and our heritage across all communities is so important to highlight. But why? Why does that difference matter? Because we're all starting from different positions to get to where we all need to go. And there's a reason for that. Absolutely. How are you sort of helping young girls sort of understand that they can claim their stories and take ownership of of that as they're moving along in their careers and taking those next steps? Well, you know, um, representation, again, I think just being here, being visible, Mm -hmm. um, unabashedly telling my story and being honest about um, the challenges within that, but also like my own failings within that and the lessons I've learned um, is really important. And individually, like I will never turn down a coffee or an informational interview. Mm -hmm. It might take me a while to get to you, (laughs) but I'll get there. Um, And that, you know, that is so important. Those like, like this, this, you know, this podcast episode wouldn't have been happening if like we hadn't you know, if connected, you hadn't reached yeah, out yeah. and we hadn't connected yeah. and, um, you never know what can grow from that. Mm-hmm. So I always make sure that my door is open. Amazing. Erica, you are so brilliant. <laughs> thank you. Brilliant. Like hashtag goals. <laughs> yes. Thank you so thank much you. for coming on our show. It's, it's been an honor to chat with you about these important issues and just, you know, reiterating the fact that it's really important to be vulnerable and to be honest about who you are and where you come from and how you feel and what you're passionate about and to use that to propel you forward and to give back to the community is one of the most important things that we can all do in our lives and in our careers. So thank you for being a beacon for all of us. Thank you so much. <laughs> Before you. we go, there's our one last question. question. <laughs> if you had a theme song to your life, say you're walking into Pinterest how, what song would be playing? So, um, funny you ask, but my friend Lashunda actually assigned me a theme song as a present <laughs> at the beginning of the year, and it's Lil' Kim, yes. Don't, with Queen B. Yes! <laughs> that makes me so you happy. Can't with Queen B. Yes, that's, that's my theme song. I play it almost every day. Oh, I love that so much. We're going to play that after this right now (laughs) (laughs) all right erica thank you so much for being on the show today and thank you all for tuning into black and lit on full service radio you can follow us on instagram at blck the letter n l-i-t and online you'll find us at blcknlit.org full service radio find them on all online platforms at full service radio be sure to rate review and subscribe and we will see you next week 5 p.m on wednesday peace